0: Maybe not for January since it's freezing cold outside, but um, just I, I go back to my school days. I remember begging the teachers if we could have class outside. Maybe we should just <laughs> take this out to the Common.
1: You know, we could have a hearing on Boston Common. <laughs> the hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order.
2: Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam
0: Doran.
1: Welcome back to another State House Takeout. With this week, Matt Murphy and Chris Lisinski of the State House News Service. Hi, guys.
2: Happy Friday. Meet Sam.
1: Hey, happy Friday. Um, the uh, the heat turned up this week on a couple of issues at uh, some packed hearings in the State House on uh, climate issues and housing issues. Um, and the heat also has literally been turning up in the in the hearing rooms. If so you stick around, we're going to talk a little bit more. We're going to take a step back, talk about uh, what committee hearings have come to be like up here on Beacon Hill. Um, uh, but quickly, uh, before we get into these hearings and, and all that stuff, uh, Matt, uh, let's just quickly mention uh, some of the pressures that are uh, forming around state budget issues this week, because uh, we got a report uh, that found a likely revenue gap around $900 million.
0: Yeah, so this week started, Sam, with uh, legislative leaders agreeing with the administration to what people around here like to call the consensus revenue estimate, and Going off of what economists had predicted back in December, and we've talked about here before of a slowing economic growth, the leaders picked a growth number of 2.8% for fiscal uh, 2021. So they're really predicting the tax revenues in the next budget year are going to slow down considerably. So if that comes to fruition, we're looking at probably 860 million or so new dollars uh, that the state can spend. And there's a lot of uh, pressures on where that money is going to go, not the least of which would be the education funding reform bill that Governor Baker signed uh, last year that is going to eat up significant amounts of new money that they have committed to the public schools. So the report you're talking about, a um, Mass Taxpayers Foundation report projecting uh, a $900 million budget gap between uh, the tax revenues projected to come in and uh, what the state needs to spend to keep up with its commitments and uh, maintain level services course, MTF used a slightly more conservative number than legislative leaders in the administration. I, th- I think they were closer to 1.7 percent revenue growth, a little more pessimistic on what the economy is going to look like in the next year. But uh, certainly seems like they're preparing for the boon times to be over.
1: Sure. And in, in the long term, uh, with the uh, so-called millionaire surtax likely headed toward the ballot, um, there will be long-term Uh, solutions for transportation and education funding, but in the short term here, where might the legislature be looking in 2020 to bridge those gaps?
0: Yeah, not knowing what the legislature, what the house is planning to do on transportation revenue in the in the near term, we're still trying to figure that out and waiting for uh, Speaker DeLeo to put out his plan. I think you can assume that Governor Baker's not going to be proposing a uh, significant new revenues next week. So uh, the choices once you start paying for education and things like the pension system and others. Uh, You probably see a a lot of level funding uh, coming up in this budget. I don't think we're quite in the territory where you're going to start to see budget cuts, uh, but you could see a lot of line items and programs level funded from last year. And that will lead to the inevitable uh, crying for more money as we move into the uh, the season of budget writing in the legislature in the spring.
1: You mentioned what we're likely to hear from the governor next week. Of course, he does have his State of the Commonwealth speech on Tuesday night, uh, broadcast on all the local channels, local radio. Um, it is interesting to think about what he might highlight. And I know we were talking back up in the newsroom about uh, what was Highlighted in his policy speech last year at his second inaugural, Um, stuff like uh, the RMV, which is unlikely to be uh, touted this time around, perhaps. Um, And one wonders if he might refer to TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative, that uh, he's been championing, but a lot of other governors have been alluding to in their uh, policy speeches, uh, notes of caution.
0: Yeah, I think you'll probably hear him talk about TCI. You'll probably hear him talk about a number of the bills that he's clearly made top priorities uh, for this session that have not yet moved. Housing, uh, first and foremost, that I'm thinking about, he's probably going to push uh, for that housing choices bill. Uh, You could hear him Uh, talk about the uh, prescription drug bill that he has filed to kind of control costs there. It's one way to get at uh, mass health expenses, which is another huge driver of state spending. And if they're going to bring down those costs and and free up money to spend in other areas, controlling a prescription drug cost is one way uh, to do it. So those are a couple things I think you could hear him uh, talk about and maybe try to nudge the legislature forward on.
1: You were down there, Matt, at the Telecommunication Utilities and Energy hearing on Tuesday, and we heard from a lot of advocates who support carbon pricing. And uh, At the start of the hearing, though, we heard from the Baker Administration's um, uh, Environmental Affairs Secretary, Kathleen um, who was talking about TCI, which is sort of the Baker Administration's answer to carbon pricing.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of people who really want to see Massachusetts move to a carbon tax uh, or, or so-called carbon pricing. And there's, there's reasons why some of the bills that the, the TUE committee hearing was focused on uh, might be better than the governor's initiative. Uh, we heard some lawmakers, including, including Paul Tucker of Salem, talk about how uh, the bills that he was supporting uh, would apply not just to vehicle emissions, but also emissions from the building sector, which is a, a big source. Of uh, carbon pollution that the state uh, acknowledges they will need to go after eventually. But the governor's proposal and the regional pact that he's pursuing, with the uh, started as 12, now 11 East Coast states to develop this cap and trade program, is really big footed the talk of a carbon pricing bill on Beacon Hill because it would do a lot of the same things. It would put a price on carbon. Uh, it has an estimated cost to consumers of perhaps five to seventeen cents uh, on the on a gallon of gas. And it would generate uh, as much, some have estimated, as $500 million for Massachusetts alone to invest in things like uh, electric buses, sidewalks, bike lanes, all kinds of clean transportation infrastructure. So that seems to be where a lot of the focus is, though you're right, we've heard a number of governors, particularly New England governors, uh, in recent weeks express some serious concerns about the consumer cost impact of TCI that has uh, raised some concerns and doubts about the future of this program, so much so uh, that uh, Speaker DeLeo this week said that he was uh, no longer comfortable factoring TCI into his thinking about long-term transportation revenues, and he's kind of pushing that off to the side as he develops his own plan.
1: Sure, and Chris, you were over at the uh, Hampshire House this morning for a press conference organized by the Mass Fiscal Alliance uh, with a lot of different opponents to TCI. Um, what form is this opposition taking? Uh, who, who exactly are they putting pressure on?
2: Yeah, so the pressure is aimed at governors and lawmakers who will ultimately have something to say about the fate of TCI in each of the states that have, to this point, signed on to at least talk about it. Uh, you know, the opposition today was led by a lot of right-leaning think tanks, free market types, uh, lower taxation types, who basically see the projected impact of 5 to 17 cents more for a gas of gallon as being a a tax that state economies just can't bear that consumers and businesses will uh, really really struggle underneath the weight of
1: as other states drop out or are considering dropping out uh, have have these local opponents been gaining any serious ground, any any tangible uh, ground? They say that they have. <clears throat>
2: um, you know, I, I, I asked what form their opposition is going to take if the status quo holds, which is New Hampshire formally dropping out, I want to say, three or four other governors publicly expressing concerns and the remaining nine not really weighing in one way or the other yet. Is that right, Matt?
0: Yeah. I mean, you have to think Massachusetts is in sort of a unique position in these talks because of uh, the Global Warming Solutions Act back in 2008 that gave Baker the authority to just uh, sign Massachusetts up for this program if he wants. According to the secretary, there are only three states that have that luxury. It's uh, us, uh, Maryland, and New York. The rest of the states in this coalition, including New Hampshire, uh, even if Governor Sununu hadn't called this a financial boondoggle, (laughs) he would have needed the legislature to approve it. And uh, so this is far from certain in all of these states and, Uh, You have uh, Janet Mills in Maine, uh, Phil Scott in Vermont uh, expressing their reservations, as well as Ned Lamont, a Democrat uh, in Connecticut. Uh, But the legislative component could come into play in in Rhode Island as well, where Gina Raimondo has been described to me as a big champion of TCI, but the Speaker of the House there has, has serious concerns.
1: Sure. Now, as there is more strain on TCI, one of the most interesting things to come out of that hearing you were at, Matt, was uh, while Secretary Thea Harides said she was focused firmly on Plan A being a member of this multi-state pact, uh, other folks like Senator Barrett were asking about Plan B. What are, what are the Plan Bs that they might actually end up falling back on?
0: Yeah, Senator Barrett loves this idea, and uh, I guess I should back up. California already has their own uh, cap-and-trade program on carbon. They're, it's such a large state that they were able to develop a market just in California alone for these carbon allowances. And uh, Barrett's idea is that if this TCI initiative should fall apart, this coalition of uh, New England and mid-Atlantic states, uh, that Massachusetts could just join a pact with California or even— Uh, eastern canada if they wanted any place that has a cap and trade program if they're willing to join massachusetts could uh, create a market for these allowances to be sold but the the real ideal here is for contiguous states that share borders uh, to form this pact uh, together uh, and that is why the erosion of support in new england is uh, being looked at so closely here in massachusetts
2: And to get back a little bit to your question earlier, Sam, you know, the opponents to this project see that question of support in New England as enough of a victory already. Nothing is decided yet, but the fact that so many states bordering Massachusetts are publicly questioning this leads a lot of opponents to say that uh, there's just no way to get this up off the ground when so many consumers and businesses could go to New Hampshire or go to Connecticut if they don't implement TCI to buy their gas.
0: But yeah, to your point, Sam, Secretary Theo Harides, while, you know, Mass Fiscal and and a lot of these groups are kind of trying to sound the the death knell on on TCI, she says she's not at all considering Plan B, that Plan A is TCI, and that's where all of her focus is right now, and she thinks uh, that this coalition can can keep together.
1: Hmm. Now, Chris, also on Tuesday, down at the housing committee, we heard a lot of emotional stories, uh... Uh, from advocates for rent control, pointing to rising costs of rent, forcing them out of their homes, et cetera. Um, Now, opponents from the real estate industry, the landlord industry, uh, say that they should be focused on production, bringing more units to the market. So, again, as we look ahead to the governor's policy speech next week, and we've been talking a lot about how uh, he and his officials have been beating the drum for this housing production bill, uh, might this dovetail nicely for them?
2: Well, you know, uh, to go back to Matt's point, I think that if the governor is going to focus on anything, it's going to be the housing choices legislation that he's been pushing for, for what, two and a half years at this point. Uh, The governor himself has come out well on the record against rent control, echoing some of those same arguments that the real estate industry makes, that it's the opposite direction of uh, increased production, which is the solution that he wants to see. So I I think the push for rent control that you're seeing from the progressive wing is really going, uh, it's a similar topic, and supporters of that see it as complementary to increase production but the governor does not share that view at all
1: right and and this push is largely coming from these metro cities, right, like Boston, Somerville, Cambridge. Um, Did we see much backing at this hearing from uh, any local reps from other parts of the state?
2: I don't think that we saw a ton of backing from elsewhere in the state. It it definitely seems to me to be more of a metro greater Boston push. Yeah. And those are the only
1: places where rent control existed back in the Right time, right. Right. You know when it was
2: (laughs) repealed in 1994, it was only in place in Boston, Brookline, and Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it it is much more of an Eastern Massachusetts push. But by the same token, you know Eastern Massachusetts has a higher portion of renters and a higher you know median rent price than some other parts of the state
1: does. Sure. All right. Well, here's the thing that I've I've really been dying to talk about all week, (laughs) and I did a lot of grousing on Tuesday about this, but uh, I mean. We grouse about it most Tuesdays, just the nature of what hearings have become on Beacon Hill uh, in terms of, gosh, let's think about it. For the reporters, for the activists, for the lawmakers and the aides, for anyone involved, you go down into this cramped hearing room down in the basement with a jungle-like climate. It's humid. It's hot. People squeeze into the room. They're sprawled out on the floor, not enough seats, probably over capacity, over fire code. I mean, uh, this is a pretty much weekly occurrence during the busy legislating season, right? Yes, and I
2: will note that on Tuesday it didn't help that uh, Gardner Auditorium, which seats 600 under fire code, was closed all day due to a, quote, plumbing issue that knocked out bathrooms on that entire wing of the building, so... Uh, this Tuesday was definitely exacerbated a little bit.
1: Yeah, it's always something. And so instead of having, what, what hearing was that going to be? Housing? Housing, yeah. housing. Instead of being in a 600-person auditorium, it's down in a, a couple of rooms that they open up the dividing wall and it seats, what, 230. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt, you've been here for a number of years. Uh, is, is the problem exacerbated recently or um, has it always been like this?
0: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's always uh, been like this. There have always been those issues. Um, the Safe Communities Act which has been filed for many years now, comes to mind. This is an immigration bill that always draws huge crowds. I think what you saw this week, uh, Chris is right, I, I was down in Gardner Auditorium on Monday for another huge hearing on the, uh, the right to repair bill. This is the, the ballot push that also has a companion uh, bill regarding uh, access to digital car information for people to fix your cars. And Uh, There were hundreds of people there, but they all kind of fit in nicely, though crowded uh, nicely in the Gardner Auditorium. But that's really the only space in the State House where you can have a hearing uh, that has that much. interest behind it. And uh, we saw what happens when you don't have access to Gardner Auditorium and uh, the, the A hearing, the first floor hearing rooms, you can kind of open up those double doors and make it a double hearing room. Uh, down on the, in the basement level, I was down in B2, literally climbing over bodies. And these are all, a lot of older people were there right. uh, sitting on the floor. Uh, I was climbing over bodies just to get up and I had to sit on the floor right underneath where people were testifying. Uh, to, uh, you know, to work on my story. And uh, it's just, it's really a a tenuous situation, but there just aren't uh, large spaces in the Statehouse to accommodate uh, interest uh, bills or hearings on bills that have such great interest. Right, like that,
1: another one that comes to mind is that bill, uh, excuse me, that hearing on vaccination-related bills that ran past midnight. Uh, They just had so many people. This was, I think, last month or earlier this month Um,
0: Maybe not for January since it's freezing cold outside, but um, just go back to my school days. I remember begging the teachers if we could have class outside. Maybe (laughs) we should just take this out to the common.
1: You know, we could have a hearing on Boston Common. I mean, what's, what's, what what could be done here? Should there be more than just the Gardner Auditorium as an option, or is over-scheduling the real issue where, where the joint rules actually specify that uh, wherever possible, uh, committee hearings should not interfere with each other's schedules, uh, and yet they always do. I, I, we can understand why, right? I mean, Mondays and Fridays might be district days for lawmakers. Wednesday and Thursday are formal sessions usually for House and Senate, and that leaves this one day, Tuesday, that's just, a, a hellish compendium of every single uh, committee hearing under the sun but what 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 can be done
0: yeah i mean i think you you kind of touched you kind of touched on it right there you'd probably have to move to a schedule that has a lot more going on in this building on fridays which a lot of the members would probably not be super happy about uh, they do like to be in their districts a- ahead of the weekend Uh, You can't really have these huge hearings when the House is meeting on Wednesday and the Senate meeting on Thursday. Uh, Maybe the branches could get together and start holding sessions once a week on the same day. Uh, I'm not advocating for that. It would make our lives miserable. But, uh, you know, I guess things like that would have to be on the table. Otherwise, uh, like I said, there's just not the physical space in this old building. It's not built to accommodate Uh, large crowds
1: right and as you think about it i think our last real extension well we had the two wings put on in the early 20th century those are offices but the last real extension i think was the brigham extension in 1894 1895 when they took over a a piece of uh, a a city block and just pushed the state house backwards Um, one wonders i've been to some other state capitals with some uh, nice new modern additions i mean one wonders when it's time or if it'll be time for a another extension.
2: Yeah, where are they going to find the money for that with uh, Beacon Hill real estate prices and uh, Boston
1: construction prices? Yeah, and I guess we could loop back to the top of the podcast with our $900 million uh, estimated uh, revenue gap heading into next year
0: yeah well I, th- I do think the house still has about 20 million dollars in authorization sitting around <laughs> remember back when the senate put in some money so they could renovate their chamber which they did do because pieces of the chamber were falling down from the ceiling on people's heads literally but the house said what about us and put 20 million in uh that uh, bill for uh renovations to their own chamber which we haven't heard a peep about since so it's yeah a good point maybe you should talk to the speaker about building a, a new wing
1: you know, we could just push it right off the side of the House chamber.
0: I guess if we see that proposal and we start seeing a lot more hearings scheduled on Fridays, we'll know who's listening to this podcast.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right. Well, we'll be back here next Friday to recap um, to recap the governor's State of the Commonwealth speech. Perhaps perhaps one might say the State of the Commonwealth is st- strong. I'm
0: going to go out on a limb and say that the State of the Commonwealth is Well, let's consider that a
1: preview of Tuesday night's speech. All right. (laughs) Have a good weekend, folks.
2: Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.